Welcome to the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast, where our goal is to connect listeners to the great outdoors with hosts Brian Hoffmeyer and Ben Brandell. I'm host Ben Brandell, owner of Meant to Be Outdoors, instructor of outdoor skills, and passionate about personal growth. I'm host Brian Hoffmeyer, wildlife biologist and avid outdoorsman. Welcome back to another episode of the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast. Ben and Brian are here with you today, and we have a topic we are passionate about. We think it is so important. We are going to be talking about invasive and native species. We hope that after some of you hear this, uh, that you feel empowered to go make change, empowered to educate other people to make change, because it is going to take um, education across our country and other countries to truly make a difference. And it is time for a change. People are realizing that because most of you have probably heard these words, native and invasive plants and animals. Um, It is becoming a, a more common thing, a more popular thing to talk about. Um, I don't want to call it pop culture, but people are starting to understand there is a need for change. So, so education is important. However, you must have action after that. So that would be my next call is, is right. to have the action after you understand. And, and we'll give some people some, some tools and some ideas of, of what they can do practically um, right. just right there at their home, no matter where they live, whether they live in an apartment in New York City or, or on a ranch. We'll give them some practical tools of what you can do uh, to, to be part of the change and part of the difference. So... Let's go ahead and dive in. First, we need to know exactly what all these words mean. So what is a native plant or animal? A native species is part of the balance of nature that has developed over hundreds or even thousands of years. Some people are going to say millions. That's not part of our our belief system, mm-hmm. but it is a plant that is in its region of origin. It's in its ecosystem of origin. It's not damaging there, um, and only plants and animals found uh, in this country before Europe's Europeans settled the United States are considered to be native to the United States. And you also can't say the word native really without giving a geographical description because really every single species is native to somewhere. Mm-hmm. So you need to say where it is native to if you're talking about that. So for us here in Missouri and the Ozarks where we live, we would say native to the Midwest or native to the southeastern part of the United States. That's good. So you really have to kind of qualify it with a geographical location. So that's a native plant. Let's talk about non-native, which would be the opposite. So a plant that's introduced with human help, it can be accident or intentional uh, to a new place or a new type of habitat and ecosystem where it was not previously found. So it did not originate there. Now, not all non-native plants are invasive. Most non-native plants when they're introduced to a new place, they don't do well. They can't reproduce. They can't spread unless humans help them. When we start talking about invasive plants, they're they're going to spread rapid. It's a plant that's both non-native and it's able to establish tons of sites, grow quickly, and spread to the point of disrupting the native communities of plants and animals. It's going to destroy um, that ecosystem. So it is non-native to that ecosystem. Its introduction caused economic, environmental harm, um, sometimes even human health harm. Mm -hmm. So, um, and and we're going to talk about some of those examples. And um, some of them, sadly, are kind of hopeless. We can can reduce their impacts, but more than anything, people should know how to limit bringing more of these issues in in the future, right? Right. And then another word that is more commonly used, um, because we all, all, most of us have have lawns or even just our sidewalk leading to our building, we're going to see things that we call weeds. Well, what what does that mean? And a weed is just a plant, whether it's native or non-native, that's not valued where it is. 
So, so to the individual to the that individual. has it on their property, it they don't have value for it. It's right. A they, re, so a weed really comes down to people, the person. It's not valued to them where it is, and that doesn't matter if it's a native or a non-native plant. Any plant that poses a threat to agriculture or natural ecosystems within the United States, people are going to say is a weed, right? An example I would give of that is so many people fight dandelions on their lawn. They don't want dandelions. I know people, Blake Adams, I'll give you a shout out, that he thinks you're crazy for getting rid of all these dandelions because he loves to make, you can make dandelion wine, you can make dandelion jam, you can make dandelion tea, dandelion salad. He sees it as a valuable food source and resource. And so all that is is someone's perspective of, of that plant and where it's growing. That's good. Uh, so hopefully that example makes sense to everybody. So invasive, native, non-native weed, we've covered all that. Um, it's really important to know that uh, this applies to plants and animals. Right. So add in nuisance. Nuisance is another word right. that we hear a lot. Um, what's the definition of nuisance? Uh, really, again, it's going to... When I hear nuisance, I think more of animal, more towards animal. Right. Um, so if we're going to say weed is a, a place that we don't want a plant then I'm going to say a nuisance is uh, an animal that we don't like where it is, and it's bothering us. So can you give us examples of each invasive, non-native, native, and a nuisance? Absolutely. So when we start talking about invasive plants, some really common ones um, here in the United States are going to be um, fescue, tall fescue grass. Uh, You've got the Bradford pear tree is another really good example you have, um, well, even, yeah, poison hemlock. There is a long list. Uh, I forget the exact number, but the list is, is so long. I mean, we're going to give uh, examples uh, being a fraction of the whole list. Cerisa lespediza is another another big one. Um, Eastern red cedar we're going to talk about, and honey locust we're going to talk about. But they are a little different because they're actually native um, yet they are causing issues. So I guess they could actually more fall into a weed than an invasive plant. Because when you talk about the definition of invasive, it means that, that it's not in its original environment. I think you also taught me the word aggressive when it comes to invasive. Well, they can't really become invasive if they're not aggressive. So um, when the typical characteristics of an invasive plant species are they're drought resistant, they're disease resistant, they make a whole bunch of seeds. Um, and they spread rapidly, aggressively. They are they are an aggressive plant. Um, they some of them, for instance, Cerisa lespedisa, actually release an autotoxin that limits other plants from growing around them. So not only do they make um, over a thousand seeds per stalk, these seeds can lay dormant in soil for thirty years before growing, and they literally put out their own chemical that they create that does not allow other plants to grow around them. But we do have a native tree that does the same thing too but we consider it native right the black walnut walnut. i guess what you're referring to yes and so we consider that that's native yeah and and that's a god designed process for a plant to to produce not all plants do this but there's several species of trees and plants in the world that that produce these autotoxins and that's a god designed process for them to limit competition and for them to thrive in their original environment the original. as a native species. But right. once you remove them from their original environment, now that now that autotoxin is out competing native species that should be there. Right, that's good. 
So let's talk about animals a little bit, uh, Ben. I know you're familiar with a lot of invasive animal species, nuisance animal species. Um, what are some that impact the United States or particularly us here where we are in the central United States? Yeah, locally our battle is the feral hog. So that and, is... And that is, that's sweeping the country. I mean, we're talking Texas all over the south and, and just destroying a lot of habitat. Right. And then on the water side, the zebra mussel. Um, you and I actually fished Bull Shoals many yeah, months Bull ago. Lake, yeah. um, and whew, uh, it's crazy. The Covering thousands. Just covers everything. Yeah. And so you can see the impact. You know, uh, you had said, hey, I, I dare you to go out there and take your shoes off and walk. Yeah, they're sharp as that razors. Bluff. I mean, sharp as razor blades. And and you couldn't have taken a step without stepping on one of them. That's just how many there were. So, you know, seeing the impact, seeing what's happening is the key. Right. You know, we can talk about this all day, but until you go out and see and see those impacts, it's just words. And yeah. that's where I'm, I'm really glad I got to, to actually experience how awful that can be. And, yeah. and, and, and unfortunately... Um, I mean, you, you make a valid point with this seeing, but unfortunately with the aggressiveness that we're talking about with some of these plants and animal species, seeing is too late. Mm, um, so right. really really that, that forethought, that prevention aspect is what is I would say is the key because now that zebra mussels, once they inhabit a body of water, they're there. Now the next, the key, the step is the prevention of that spreading. So if you're going to recreate in a place that you know has zebra mussels, and then you're going to go recreate in a place that doesn't later, you need to be thorough. Clean your live wells, drain drain your live well out, clean your boat, clean your trailer, do all this stuff so that you are not spreading this to another body of water. Right. Um, and really that should be as, as outdoors people, as just people of this earth, um, children of God, people that have dominion over plants, animals, wildlife, all that, all those things, we do have the responsibility. We bear that burden because it is a burden to mm. have to wash your boat and your trailer every time you go from a different place. We bear that burden to uh, to protect um, what we've been blessed with. Right. Another in, in the water side is the Asian carp. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I believe it was the Mississippi that I was in. And that's was, again, firsthand that I got to see that um, a boat fired up its engine. And I mean, these things started jumping out, going crazy. But the, the impact that they're having is is they reproduce very quickly. And if you've ever driven a boat through them, <laughs> scary. It is scary. But there's so many videos of people wearing football them nets helmets and football helmets and try to catch them out of the air. Um, but it is bad. They, I think it was something I haven't got to do that I want to try. What's which that? It it, it created a, a recreational opportunity there, but. They're bow fishing, but they're not. It's not your typical bow fishing where you're going with lights and you're trying to shoot these fish while they're under the water. As these fish, as you're going through, and these Asian carp are leaping out of the water, people are shooting. They're shooting them out of the air with their bow and arrow. That looks like you could probably could spend an afternoon doing that. You could. Yeah, be very careful. Make sure there's no other boats around you. But that would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um. Uh. In college, I remember that one of the states up north had put out a million dollars like reward for anyone that could come up with an idea of how to how to eradicate them and right i mean i thought and thought but i'm not a millionaire today so (laughs) so you didn't i I don't think anybody did either (laughs) they haven't yet and that's what that that's something that's really interesting but before we touch on a few animals here i want to point this out that people are are beating their heads against the wall i mean and when i say people i'm talking about highly educated our our smartest scientists and biologists in in the world and in our country at our our best universities how to combat this things like feral hogs and asian carp 
and we can't come up with answers. And an example of, of why we don't really have the answers is here in our state where we live in a lot of other states, our rules and regulations towards these animals change all the time because we don't even know the best way to control them. So that, that whole... Uh, we're adapting and changing our, our management techniques to try to eradicate it. And really the answer probably is that it's, it's a management state. It's not an eradication state. A lot of people hearing this would say, if I can't do anything to fix it, then who cares? Right. You know, or I've got so many other things going on in my life, so many other problems. Who cares? Yeah. We've only got so much time and energy, so it's hard to, to, to divert that um, when it's not directly impacting you. And I think that's what begins to happen is who cares until it begins to impact us. Right. You know, our deer populations here in Missouri, they're really high. They're they're great. They're doing mm-hmm. very, very well. But the more deer you have, the more chance that you're going to hit one with your car. Right. Right. And so as, as they begin to overpopulate or populate a, an urban area that they used to not live – now there is they're going into the main highway, you're hitting, now it's impacting us. Some people are like, we need to do something about these deer. That's kind of where we're, we're wanting to educate now and really share about that now is the time to be thinking and, and yeah. learning of what is happening and how can I help? Because, just like you said earlier, who cares until it impacts you? And once it starts impacting you, sometimes it can be too late. I think your wife's a good example of that right now. Am I invasive? I have never, no, you're, <laughs> some people might say you are. However, I've never heard your wife talk about deer ever. And I've known I have known your wife since I was I think 8 years old. Right. I've never heard her talk about deer ever. But all of a sudden, deer are on her mind and she's has some disdain or passion um, towards deer because oh, no, she's very frustrated. She's very she's frustrated. She's very frustrated. Yes. Uh, I think she even said she wanted to kill some. She if she could, if, yeah. if she could, she would. She's not going to It'd be out of season. She knows that. But she she has some hostas, that, yeah. some some uh, some plants that she's ornamental plants that she's really nurtured and grown, and they look big and beautiful. Or they did look they big. Did. And, <laughs> yeah, they did. And uh, the deer have helped themselves to a a, a nice, tasty, easy meal. Right. But my point being, she didn't care too much about deer. But now that it's impacting her, she's realizing that there may be a lot of deer that. Too many were right where you live. Yeah, and to be clear, our deer are native. Right. So we're good there. But on the native side, you can have those impacts. Mm-hmm. And then flipping on the invasive side, at a small level, once we identify it's invasive, if it's controllable, then we're trying to still control the invasiveness. However, as aggressive as a lot of this is that we're talking about, you're telling me there's there's not a whole lot that you can do for some of them. So what I mean is winter creeper. This is one that when you're out, you are talking with landowners, farmers, deer hunters. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a plant that you talk about a lot. I, I didn't do. even know winter well, we creeper. We see it a lot. And it's because we see it a lot. So what is winter creeper and, and so how does it impact? Winter us? creeper is, is just that. It's a creeping, it's a vine. It grows, uh, it, it actually can be carpeting, can grow over the ground and t- takes over all the ground cover. And then it will actually grow uh, to the top of any tree. It doesn't, the height doesn't matter. Um, it can choke out any tree species. We see it a lot in river valleys and those low-lying areas because the rivers and the flooding uh, uh, spreads it. And as it recedes, as some of the plants um, are damaged and kind of into a dormant state because of that water, this plant 
and its seeds are exposed and it can just really take over. And it is a non-native and it is extremely invasive and it is one that we will probably never eradicate. As a matter of fact, I know our state spends millions of dollars a year trying to eradicate it. You can go volunteer to help eradicate it. Um, it's really hard to get rid of. You can pull it, rip it up, all you want, it's going to grow right back. There's even um, a lot of herbicides that kill pretty much any other broadleaf plant, and it will not affect winter creeper. Um, it is actually native to Asia. It was imported in the early 1900s, and we brought it here as a decorative ground cover. And people can still go to a nursery today, pretty much any nursery in the United States of America, and buy it and plant it in your your garden, your mulch bed. Everything has a purpose. And what I would ask, it serves do that, that purpose. I mean, it is absolutely working for that. Yeah, absolutely. But it was intentionally brought here for that. It's cheap. We can plant, buy and plant a whole bunch of it. Um, it'll cover walls and trees. You know, it kind of, as far as aesthetics, it kind of creates a cool, aesthetically pleasing look. Now remind me, it's green all, all year, year round. That's exactly what I was It's gonna... always green. It's yeah. evergreen. So it always has green waxy leaves on it. So uh, places that have a lot of deciduous species in the winter, you've got you've still got some green, but it's escaped cultivation and it just forms these dense mats that choke off every native plant that it's around. I mean, really nothing can can coincide with it, um, and it it has caused so much damage and it spreads so rapidly. Um, I have it here um, on my property at my house and I'm trying to control it. I'm seeing it in tiny little spots popping up and I'm I'm really just ripping and cutting it as it comes up. I've tried some different herbicides that have not been effective. So really I am just pulling it so it cannot spread, but it, it's just an active, I would call it more managing it because I'm not eradicating it. As soon as I see it, I rip it out and it grows back in the same spot. Mm. It's really difficult. Um, and, and the best action step for you against winter creeper is to please don't buy it and put it around your property and in your house. And we'll, we'll see, there's a lot of examples of common cultivars that we've bought as domesticated plants to be decorative that have escaped uh, our landscaping and are now impacting um, our wildlife environments. Let's turn. <clears throat> I, I want to go back to animals real quick because there's one There's one that I, I don't want to leave out. Actually, two I want to hit on. Um, one is going to be uh, this emerald ash borer. And people don't, um, if you're not, again, if you're not impacted, if you haven't seen an ash tree die or know that ash trees are dying, it's a little tiny, called the emerald ash borer. It's it's a little tiny green beetle, and it literally came here from northeastern Asia and is wiping out North American ash trees, over tens of millions of trees in 30 different states in the U.S. Um, and that number is growing all the time. It is hard to grow ash trees here in the United States anymore because of this beetle, and we've had really hard times controlling it because it's hard to even know where it is until the tree is already too damaged. So, it, I mean, you can't just go spray every ash tree in the United States for emerald ash borer. So it's just really difficult and not economical to be able to control it. Um, and it was brought here, they believe it was brought here um, by accident and pallets of wood that was coming over. It was just on a ship in these pallets of wood. And, and now it's here in the United States destroying um, one of our, our native trees. And that can make you feel hopeless. You it know, can. A lot of what we're talking about causes people to maybe even feel anxious or get the anxiety because we, we hear all these words from global warming all the way down to what we're talking about, maybe extinction or, or these invasive species. So um, let's go back before we dig into what, what we can do about this because we do want to give you hope. But there is, an, there is another example that I want to share that's in that native 
which people think is invasive, but it's truly native. So when you and I were, were kids growing up, we'd be out in the yard playing kickball, walking through the woods. The noises we heard were different than the noises that we hear today. And what I mean is, as we started getting older, we started seeing these gray-shelled creatures, okay? These gray-shelled creatures that were foreign. Uh, it was kind of a scary thing because I'd never seen one before. Mm-hmm. Till today, there are so many, it's such a common thing that that we're used to them. So we're talking about the armadillo. The armadillo, when I was a kid, we did not have. Yeah, the nine-banded armadillo. The nine-banded armadillo. We did not have them. Mm-mm. And now today, it's it's a part of educating people that this is the animal that we have. They live here now. So if they migrated on their own... They actually consider them a native here in Missouri. That's what I was going to ask. Um, what and, and what are they because considered? because of their, their natural... They call it, they would be naturalistic or naturalism. Um, we didn't bring them here. They're they're native to the United States. Um, the, the nine banded they think really made its way up from the south from from Texas up this way, but it, it just keeps going more and more north. Um, and and maybe it's adapting to those colder climates, but they are so frequent here that I mean, you can't drive a mile on the road without seeing one dead on the road. If you go out in the woods and if you are deer hunting in the forest, you are going to hear what you might think is a bear coming up behind yeah. you because they make a lot of noise as they're, as they're going through that, that leaf litter they're looking for their They insects. keep their head under the leaf litter, and, I mean, they're just yeah, they're they're digging and pushing. They're digging and it, looking to eat. Especially if at night, it's it's loud. Yeah. yeah. And they have caused damage. I mean, they'll, they'll dig holes in your yard. They'll dig holes in your garden because there's a lot of there's a lot of grubs and worms and insects there, and they really like that. They so know where to they find would be a food. nuisance species, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, a nuisance. Yep. Yeah, people... They definitely are a nuisance. So I can say without a doubt, they have nuisanced me in my lifetime. There you go. Right. For sure. Yeah. A couple other nuisance I can think of is is the Canada goose, the Canadian goose. Yeah. Native, you know? but. Right. A nuisance. Not invasive, but mm-hmm. native, but you get in the nuisance side as well. So, And then people are impacted by bears, right? So bears come in, trash cans, cars. You know, there are more and more videos coming out about these bears breaking into people's cars and mm-hmm. like destroying them. You know, right. getting all the way in and, and one, busting their way through the windshield and crawling out. So you do have nuisance species. Right, but people have a responsibility there, too. And and that's that's something we're, we're so quick to blame. Oh, this bear busted in my window. Well, if you're in bear country and you left food in your car, well, you have some accountability and some responsibility there. Because that is a native place where that animal lives. Um, and you should have, you should be willing to make some change and take the responsibility to coincide and live with it. So if you're leaving food in your car outside and it busts in your car, well, uh, maybe you should have a little ownership of that. I think the same goes for the plant. Mm -hmm. So the plants you're talking about, we do have a responsibility, um, accountability that now that we know that it is causing impacts to our native species, then don't go buy those ornamental plants that are invasive and aggressive and take over and wipe out the things that that we love um one more that's that's on top of my mind <clears throat> my mind here well this if 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 i think i know where you're going here this is one some people aren't going to like to hear it right and a lot of people are going to be surprised to hear this and this is this is something that that is newer in my mind what i mean is is i didn't realize we had a problem with this with this animal um now I don't know if I know where you're going. Let's see if I know where you're going here. If I'm reading your mind correctly, my awakening. Are we one, are we connected enough here on this? My awakening is when I went to Arizona. Oh, I know the story, and we are on the same page. Good. We are connected. Good. So when I went to Arizona, 
um, driving around, we were we were helping um, teach kids outdoor skills. Right. You know, we went in the urban. Oh yeah, yeah, it's yeah. An urban environment. Um, so there's a lot of partnerships that came together and brought kids out. And and with that, you also are still in the city. So mm-hmm. you're you're at a little park. It's there are beautiful parks down there, by the way. Arizona's parks are amazing. Groomed, they look awesome. Yeah. But you see all kinds of things running around that I don't normally see here from where I'm from. <laughs> and what I realized is I started seeing signs along the road on fences in trees at the park that said, do not feed the cats. And I'm like, we don't have signs at home that say don't feed cats. I mean, why would you have that sign? Right. The locals began to tell me that, I mean, the cat population is absolutely out of control. We're talking about feral domesticated cats. Correct. And and I'm going to use the word wild, so mm-hmm. using feral. Feral, yeah. But what I mean by the feral is that wild side, you're not calling them, here, kitty, 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 and they're mm-hmm. coming to you. You're not... You can't even get close to them. I mean, they if are. If you do lay your hands on one, they're going to tear you up. They're going to tear you up. But a lot of people felt bad for them, and they place food out every day. Yeah. And all that's doing is is encouraging that, that so aggressive growth. Feral domesticated cats are considered one of the top most destructive invasive animals in the United States of America. Um, again, kind of this, it, it's similar to feral swine because it, it, they domesticated in Eurasia and from the Middle Eastern wild cat is where that came from. And they brought them over here to the Americas. The Europeans did. And then a lot of times they were just left to roam. And in the United States, every single year, one billion songbirds are killed. One billion songbirds are killed every year because of feral cats. And there's six billion deaths of just smaller flora, fauna, mat, uh, rice, rice. They're rats, killing rice mice. out there. Put them together. Mice, Good job. rats, birds, uh, lizards, snakes. Cats are incredible hunters. Incredible. I've I've been privileged enough to be um, uh, in a tree stand and, and watch a bobcat hunt. Cats are that's what they're created to do, and they're they're great at it. So when we are just letting them go, have tons and tons of kittens and and be wild, they are going to damage our our native our native fauna, our native plant or animals that are supposed to be out there. They're also really disease ridden. These feral cat populations have a lot of disease and they just continue to spread it. So the best thing that, that you can do is neuter and spay your cats. And then if, if you have indoor cats, keep them inside. That's the best thing you can do. Um, and so I don't know of many areas that it's not a problem where there are, I mean, even right here, we we're pretty out in the country here where I'm at. Uh, there are, there was a feral cat population. I, we dealt with it growing up where I lived. Um, and then, yeah, as you go to some of these urban environments, so much so that the cities are spending government money, tax dollars, um, uh, to try to control it. And, th- and that was the difference. You know, where, where you and I grew up, we used cats in the barns. You know, we'd have cats. They'd be outside. They'd help with that, I'm going to say rice, the rat and mice population. <laughs> um, they helped with that. That's why you kept them around. This was so different in Arizona you saw them on every corner under any propane tank, any shade tree. They were they were everywhere, and I, I'd never seen that before. Mm-hmm. It, it was again awakening and bizarre. It really is. It really is. So let's get into another little caveat. And you and I kind of both have hinted at this earlier in the episode, but uh, there are native species. I'm not going to call them invasive, but there are native species that become a problem or a nuisance. And I'm going to talk about two plants here. 
and talk about the eastern red cedar and the honey locust. These are near and dear. I'm not going to, I shouldn't say dear. They're near to my heart because of my passion against them. Um, I have had to eradicate a lot of them in my time. A lot of blood, literally blood, sweat, tears, herbicide, sweat, um, heat exhaustion. I got heat exhaustion one time no, trying smart. to uh, trying to get rid of some of these things. But So the eastern red cedar and honey locust, again, they're native species to the middle U.S. here where we are. However, they become a problem because of our human manipulation of their original environment. So what I mean by that, if you're driving down a highway, uh, Oklahoma, Missouri, Illinois, Arkansas, um, there's probably probably almost every state in the United States. If you're driving down the highway and you've seen the areas where they've cleared off to build the road, the first thing they get covered in is either Cerisa or Eastern Red Cedar, and then usually you have the combination of Cerisa Lespediza and Eastern Red Cedar. Now, they weren't there before we started blasting dynamite and bulldozing and making these roads. The seeds were there, but now we've killed everything else out, and these are early succession plants that are very viable. They grow very quickly. They're the first thing to grow, and now that's all that covers that area. Well, now that that's all that's covered that area, and they're all making seed and reproducing more plants, now you have an exponential growth. And then any area that becomes disturbed because of all the seed present, these are the plants that are now there. And they do become kind of an invasive state, even though they're a native plant. Why aren't other things planted? Um, you know, we have to have roads. We do. We're, we're going to blast. We're going to make roads. I love roads. I love getting to point A to point B as smooth as possible. Mm -hmm. Where's where's the hole there, though? I mean, where have we, where's that gap? Why aren't we filling it with things that, that should be there instead of these invasive style? So, again, back to the char characteristics of these plants that, that are overtaking and damaging. They grow very easily. They don't need a lot of water. They they aren't um, susceptible to pests. They're not susceptible to, susceptible to diseases. Um, so, a lot of times they grow on their own or they're really, really cheap to get and obtain. So, it, it comes down to a money issue so often... Cerisa lespediza, one of the reasons it was brought in was uh, for erosion and because, literally because it spread so rapidly. So you would have thought that somebody would have had the forethought to think, well, if this spreads this rapidly, it's going to spread over everything. But um, it was just such an easy oversight, and that's what's happened so many times. Um, what is cool about eastern red cedar is that it can be taken care of mechanically and you don't have to use chemicals. So if you cut an eastern red cedar, if you cut the stump below the lowest limb, it requires no herbicide. It will not grow back. But that does take some blood, sweat, and tears and to go out there with a chainsaw and, and to cut those things. And so that's what you did a lot of. A lot. Right. Thousands, tens of thousands of cedar trees I, with a chainsaw, have, have, have cut down. Right. Now, I love Hundreds them. of makers. I love them for, when we teach survival, they're awesome for fire. That's one of Correct. our... So... There's a love-hate relationship. He hates them. I love them. But I do understand that they are creating an impact in certain areas, and, and that needs to be controlled. Yeah. And you they talked have, about they the have their uses. I mean, they're, they're a native species. They have their right. uses, but we've mismanaged. So then what about the honey locust? You, you said those two. Very similar on the honey locust. Again, a native species that grows very, very quickly, produces a whole bunch of seeds. It's valuable, valuable to wildlife because it's a legume. It's in the family Fabiaceae, so the, the legume seed pods that it produces are are very uh, nutritious and sweet they're even edible to humans once they're brown that's very sweet on the inside um, but they produce so many of those seeds 
and so many animals eat them that they spread all over. They grow very, very quickly, and they can live up to 150 years. They have huge six-inch thorns on mm -hmm. them. Um, so if you have them around and you're trying to farm or drive, these thorns will go right through a 10-ply tire, no problem. Um, some people even say that they think these... Um, these thorns have an irritant or a poison on them. Now, I have had these um, jammed into me. I've actually had the tips of them broken off on, in me working around them. And it does create a sensation that is different than other thorns. I mean, literally, I've had my entire quadricep muscle lock up because of one of these thorns in there. But most research has found that there, there isn't a poison or anything on them. So not really sure what it is, but it is very, very painful to have one of these, these thorns in you. But the point of both of those species is saying that if we don't go out and we don't, as humans, manipulate um, the environment, they wouldn't be an issue. But because of our manipulation, they are. Um, another issue with the honey locust is that they they look cool. They have a, a panightly compound leaf, so it's got a cool look. They have cool white flowers and the pods. So people use them as a cultivar. Uh, you'll go down to city squares and down the median of the city square you'll you'll see honey locust trees and they have cultivared a, a thornless species of them now and they, they'll just plant them everywhere and really we should not be using these kinds of plants and the reason we're using them for ornamentals is because they grow so easily they don't die they don't take a lot of human help but that is the issue that's why they spread is because they don't take human help and we really need to be forward thinking in that i hope you guys as we keep going through this and talking about these plants are easy to use. They don't need us. That you see that we, we're the issue. We are the issue. Humans, humans have created most of these problems. Right. But we can be the solution. If we're the issue, we can also be the solution. That's what I want to get into. I mean, there's so many, so many invasive species that we could talk about. There's a, a lot of nuisance species. So many native species that most of us don't even know that's in our backyard. You know, one point is my, my children know more about elephants and giraffes than anything that lives around them locally, which blows my mind, right? It's, it's That's what they teach you in school. That's what we learn in school about everything else but what's in our backyard. They know more about elephants than they do about white-tailed deer. Right, exactly. But we asked the question earlier, who cares? And, and now we know why, but now my question well, for you is what can we do? What can we do to... Why does it even matter, though? Why does what matter? Why does it matter? <clears throat> an, example of, uh, an example I want to uh, give to you of, of why it matters. Why it matters. I want to talk about Kentucky 31 tall fescue grass. Most okay. people can't even identify it, but I will tell you that if you are in the eastern half of the United States, um, even out, we'll say Oak, from Oklahoma, Texas, east, all the way to, to the Atlantic Ocean, you have seen tall fescue grass. It's most people's lawns. It's most people's turf. It's most people's pastures. It is not native. It came here in the late 1800s with with uh, the Europeans as they came over here. Um, it was likely um, in a contaminated contaminated seed bag that was being um, distributed from, from Europe as an export. And when it got here, it took off. It did really well in the hillsides of Kentucky and they started studying it. And then in the 1940s, they released it as a cultivar. And what I mean by a cultivar is we're now producing and selling it for people to plant as their pasture. It is a cool season. So, meaning it grows well into the cooler months here in the United States and in the, in the south and the southeast. It is extremely drought, resist, drought resistant, extremely disease resistant, extremely pest resistant. It grows 
Um, a lot of biomass, meaning our native grasses grow in uh, bundles and bushes and there's space in between them. This is a matting grass. It grows just a solid, solid thicket. So when you grow it with little to no cost because it grows in any condition, any soil type, pretty much any pH level of the soil, um, you're going to not spend very much money and you're going to get a whole bunch of biomass for that for your animal. So again, it comes down to what? Money, which it, do, it seems like everything does. So you're spending less, growing more, which in turn means you have more hay, bigger, fatter, healthier cattle, and you make more money. And if that's your business, if you're a farmer, it's hard to bl- it's hard to blame someone for that. Yeah, it's not killing cows either. Right. You know, so there well, are a lot of people. Some some cows, if you don't manage it right, with endo- endophyte toxicosis from the from the fungus. Good. So, well, there's an exception I have a rule, but my point is majority of the farmers that, that are here don't even know what you're talking about. They turn their cattle out. They eat it. They rotate it. They may feed some grain, minerals. Mm-hmm. They may get a hay bale once in a while, but they are eating that grass. If it was wiping out our cattle populations... Then we'd get rid of it. Now we would get rid of it. Right. But clearly, it isn't impacting at that level, so we're, we've kept it. And it's, it's cheap and it's easy. It's cheap and it's easy. So is it even worth switching? Can we even even get rid of all fescue and move back to native grasses. So, and I, I wish I had the exact numbers for you, and, and I'm going to tell you why I, uh, with a lot of conviction, definitely think it is worth switching um, and, and maybe just managing in, in different, I'm not saying to eradicate it, but re, we're just doing monocultures of it. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of acres of just solid fescue, and then people want to turn around and say, well, why are our wild turkey populations decreasing? Why don't we have bobwhite quail anymore? Mm-hmm. What What is happening to all this? Why don't we see big blue stem? Why don't we see gamma grass? Why don't we see all these things that were our native plain species? Well, it's because fescue is out competing all of our native species. And you know what our native animals need to live? Our native species, mm-hmm. their original environment where they live. So the easiest way for me to explain this is if you put up a wall, can you walk through it? Depends how big I am. Big you are. If you put up a wall, can you walk through it? No, With drywall can't. and everything, you can't. Mm-mm. Now, that's fescue. If I take the drywall off the wall and all that's left is the two by four studs, can you walk through it? You can. A lot you easier. Absolutely can. The two by fours would represent our native species. Again, they grow in bundles. They're bundle grasses. So as a little teeny tiny bobwhite quail that's smaller than a chicken chick is trying to pick through and find bugs or escape from a bobcat. It needs to be able to weave through those grasses. They need to be able to put their nests in those grasses. And the same thing's going to go for a turkey poult. A turkey poult is the size of a little tiny chicken chick when it's born. It needs to be able to walk. It can't fly through these grasses. If you have a wall, a solid mat, matting grass of tall fescue, these these animals that live down in this habitat, they can't go through it. So now you have hundreds and hundreds of acres that are not viable for these animals and they're pushed down to the little tiny fence rows. Some people don't even leave their fence rows anymore, so it's just a fence and then more fescue. There's really no divide when you're talking about an animal So let's habitat. stop there a second. So explain that just a little bit more. Um, you're talking about no one leaves any habitat for these animals right. along fence rows. So you're talking about farmers. Right. What can they do? What are they doing, and what can they do differently? Well, yeah, such a such a simple thing, and the most applicable thing to do is is to uh, leave buffer zones. Um, so all of these species that I'm talking about directly, deer, turkey, quail, um, those are the uh, the hottest topics here in the United States. 
Um, they're edge, what's called an edge species. So as you go from a, a forest, that transition to uh, that grassland type habitat, they, they love the edge. They live on the edge. They find their food, their cover, um, their nests, all, all that's going to be on the edge. So if you have a fence row, rather than cutting out every tree and every bush and all the native species that live there so that you have maximum acres, leave a 10-yard buffer on either side. Now you have a 20-yard window of native habitat so there is at least something there so now you've got best of both worlds you have your fescue that you can run your cattle on and then you've left a buffer zone which you really should fence off because the cattle will destroy it if you're running cattle on it um, now you've got a buffer zone where wildlife can live and we need those wildlife because they're part of a food chain so you may say well i'm a farmer i'm farming soybeans i'm farming alfalfa i don't care about that buffer and those wildlife because i make more money without them but at the end of the day, you're damaging all the way down to the bees and the flowers that they use. And so your pollination of your plants that you're going to make money is not going to be as good. Mm, that's good, right? Yeah. So it, it really is a, a compound effect. And I'm sorry to be rambling on, but if you can't tell, I'm, I'm passionate about this. And I, I desire to be part of the change um, here where we live or even in the United States. Well, and let's wrap up with that. Let's, let's talk about that. What can you do? If, if you're not a farmer, if you're not a landowner... What can different people do? How can we... Well, I'll tell you this. Anybody can do anything. Um, whether, again, if you are in a... If, if you have a plant in your window in an apartment or on your balcony, uh, let's try to do native plants because there are pollinator species of bees, butterflies, that they need pollinating plants, and we need those for our ecosystem. Also, the wind or other animals could take your non-native seeds and pollen and go spread that, even if you're on the 20th story um, of an apartment building. So start right there. Right. And then, again, I've already talked all the way up to large-scale farmers what they could do with buffer zones. Um, we talked a little bit about those those aquatic species, cleaning your gear. If you know you're going to a place that, that has um, invasive species problems, if you see it, um, firewood is another big one. We really shouldn't be moving firewood from one place to another. Try to cut it where you need it and use it in that location. So sure why I have been asked this before. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I've had people come up and say, what's this? Why can't I take my firewood? I'm going, I'm taking it there and I'm going to light it on fire and it's going to burn up and anything in it will die. Right. What's the big deal? What's, what's the big deal? Well, if so, let's say here at my house, I have emerald ash borer. And I cut down this dead ash tree because, of course, it's now killed. And I'm going to stack up the firewood and make some use of that resource. And I'm going to load up my pickup truck and I'm going to go camping in Oklahoma. So I load up, I drive up to Oklahoma. Now I go to a campground. There's no emerald dashboard there. It's not within 200 miles. Well, I set up camp. Guess what's still in my logs? Emerald dashboard. I'm setting up camp. They come out. Now guess what they're taking over? All the ash trees and this campground and now you've got this exponential growth in this effect so really should leave it where it's at because if it is infected that area is already infected let's not affect another area gotcha That's good. um what else could is really easy things volunteering any state is going to have programs against invasive species I, I think every state in the united states has programs against invasive animal and plant species and they will gladly at a drop of a hat take you as a volunteer to go out on some of their programs so if you're really wanting to get involved and put boots on the ground reach out to your conservation department uh, you and i have actually helped out with those programs we have uh, we bush honeysuckle another one invasive mm -hmm. we went through and helped and that was man 
learned a lot through those programs. So go check them out. Definitely. And if if you've heard this and some of the things we've talked about you have an issue with or you want to go help with um, and, and you don't know how to get rid of it, we'd be glad to reach out to us. We can tell you um, tactics or what herbicides to use um, to help you um, help you eradicate some on your on your own time. Um, one thing I really want to talk about is everybody loves plants. Everybody loves green. If you're going to plant, move native, go to your nursery. Any good nursery is going to be able to guide you to some of the native plants that they have. And if they can't, then you need to go to a different nursery. So things like, you know, common milkweed or dogwood trees instead of Bradford pears, we need to be moving in those directions and, and, and understanding that our native plants and animals can be just as beautiful or more beautiful than the invasive ones. Now, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to money. Are you going to probably have to pay a little more? You are. But I would rather you plant one dogwood tree instead of 10 Bradford pears at the same price because your ecological environment, the wildlife around you are going to benefit from that, and you're still going to have beauty by using the native. Here's a money consequence, too. Bradford pears had them on our property. Mm -hmm. They grow fast. They're pretty. They create shade. The first strong storm we had, you're paying to clean it up. It completely broke it. I mean, it completely right. broke over, killed it, done. So all that time spent in this Bradford pear, if I would have started with a dogwood, mm-hmm. it would still be in the ground today and probably even bigger than, than the Bradford pear where it was at. So, you know, there's consequences for we want it fast, we want it now. There's consequences for that. We may right. get what we want in the moment, but long term, it may be worse. Right. And as far as farming with the fescue and all that, you know, we have equipment now that makes farming our native species of grasses a, a lot more, a lot easier. Um, so try transitioning to some of those native species. Look up what they are, order some seed, get some of that in the ground. Even if you're just doing it in spots as test, every acre of native is going to help. It's going to help reset um, quail and turkey and butterflies are these things that we need to have otherwise we're going to see that list of 900 extinct extinct animals we're going to see that continue to grow if we don't take those steps mm. another thing in your yard is we've created this concept in the united states of mow everything we're mowing a fescue monoculture everywhere in our yard um let some let some areas grow what's really cool um ab- about some of those native plants that if you if you can limit their competition in these areas that you're not mowing, they're going to establish themselves. Um, so if you've got some acreage, leave an acre or two that, that doesn't grow. Uh, an awesome thing to do is in the winter when it's dormant to do a prescribed fire and actually burn it. Fire, which again, I think is God's design, stimulates our native seeds. So if you look at a fescue pasture down in the seed bed, in the soil, there are millions of native seeds. Forbs, grasses, everything. The, mm-hmm. the old prairie that used to be there, mm-hmm. it's still there. It's just down in the soil. So if you eliminate the dormant grass, the dormant fescue that's on top, and you burn it, you stimulate with the heat those seeds, those native seeds that are there, and all of a sudden you're going you're gonna to have a, a prairie, a native prairie, and that's you're awesome. going to see more wildlife, and, and you are going to benefit from it too. It, it is a really cool process, and I love being part of those. Absolutely. Well, Brian, I, that's amazing information. If you guys have more questions, please reach out to us. We would love to help. Brian, he's 
so passionate. I mean, you can hear it in his voice. He wants to continue to share even more. So again, please reach out if you have questions. Yeah, and we we do Habitat Consulting as well. So if you have property and you'd like us to come out and look about how we can implement some more native processes and plants and animals into your land, give us a give us a shout. Give us an email. We'd love to come tour your property and help you. Um, it doesn't matter where you are. We, we'll definitely travel to you. But I hope everyone has learned something from this. At the very least, if you understand the definitions, I am passionate about this. Should be part of our education. So let's let's get this into our public schools. Ben mentioned these kids know more about elephants than they do our, our native flora and fauna. Let's teach this in junior high and high school the plants and animals where we live so that people care. Because mm-hmm. once you know and, and, and you, you create a caring for that, and we should implement that some more. So push for that where you're at. If you're on the school board or a parent that can go to a school board meeting, push for some of this stuff to be taught. And in the meantime, we're going to be pushing for it to be taught where we're at. We're going to be teaching it here locally at our programs. Um, and, and we're Absolutely. very passionate about that. We're going to mm-hmm. put all we can to do that. Uh, again, reach out if you have questions. I do think that's it for this episode of the Meant to Be Outdoors. If you like what we're doing and you would love to support us, uh, find our Patreon link to become a supportive member. We're having $5 and $10 members right now can find that through any of our social media accounts um, as well we would also love if you leave us a review on itunes to help us move up those charts but most of all we just appreciate you turning this on and listening we hope that between now and our next episode you find some time to get outdoors thank you for listening to the meant to be outdoors podcast thank you for listening to the meant to be outdoors podcast hosted by brian hoffmeyer and ben brandell please help us by subscribing also Follow along on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook.